Uh, we are continuing along in our, uh, in our series called Basics. Anytime there is, uh, when things go awry in culture or in our own lives, it's really important if we have fundamental skills to return to the fundamentals. And so that's what we've been doing. We've spent the last six or so weeks really rehearsing uh, the benefits of the gospel, the benefits of the life of Jesus Christ um, uniquely appropriated to his people. And so his, the gospel has power over our past. It has power available to us, gives power to us in our present, but also issues promises that we continue to hold on to for our future. And last week, we started to really kind of get into this second phase of Jesus' community and mission and community, specifically about how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit give us each, a, they impart to us a unique identity. So last week, the big idea was the Father has made us a family. And this week, we're looking at how Jesus has served us, and, and, and as he has served us with his very life, he turns us into servants. So if you would, turn in Mark's gospel um, to chapter 10, verse 31. The Black Bible's around the room. It's on page 775 if you want to interact with those or pull up an app on your phone as well. I just want to orient you to this text, but we will read it fully in about 10 minutes or so. But I want to just kind of set up where I'm going this morning. There are some, uh, Mark, the writer of this gospel, was likely a disciple of Peter. And so he's probably hearing these accounts firsthand from the apostle Peter. Uh, he is developing a theme in Mark right here, and we're starting in verse 31, which is the end of kind of a thought block on how, your, um, how the translators have set this text up. So verse 31, um, it, it, it says, the, this is Jesus speaking, Mark is telling us what Jesus is teaching, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then Jesus moves through this, um, telling the disciples, foretelling his death, his coming death and resurrection for the third time. And then Mark will tell us this story of how James and John came to Jesus looking to sit on his right and on his left in the kingdom, these positions of power and significance and glory. But then Jesus, he says, he ends this teaching, he kind of rebukes and corrects them with this in verse 43. He says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So notice there's first, there's allusion to first and last here. Whoever would be great first must be your servant last. Whoever would be first among you must be last or slave of all. And then he ties it up. It culminates. The epitome here is in his own example. For even the Son of Man, he's referring to himself here, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Mark is doing is developing a theme. If you go back to Mark chapter 9, these disciples, they, all, they, they tangled up with one another earlier in Mark 9.33, and they were arguing about who would be the greatest. And so Jesus kind of set them straight there, and then they continue to live together and, and, and move on the way to Jerusalem. But then, and then we come to this, this passage that I just alluded to in, in Mark 10, 31, and then 43 through 45. What Jesus is doing here, what Mark is doing, is actually showing us how Jesus is developing a picture of, how, of, of what it means to follow him. Following Jesus is rooted in self-giving. It's rooted in a willingness to part with our own self-interest. Following Jesus 
brings with it a willingness to part with our own self-interest. He would say, if anybody wants to be my disciple, what? He must deny himself or herself and follow me. And so serving other people, taking on the posture, the identity of a servant, it's a picture of the king that we serve, and it's a picture of his coming kingdom as well. And so following Jesus, it's as challenging for disciples as it is good news for disciples. Following Jesus, the fact that he's invited us to follow him is absolutely good news, that we can be reconciled to God, that we can be his people, that we can be with him. But it's also, following him also brings with it incredible challenges. And Jesus, because he is the creator of humanity, he knows humanity down to the bottom, he knows exactly what is good for us, what's, ex- what's right for us. He knows, in a human example, that we need rest and we need to be challenged. We need good news for weary souls, and we also need to be called up into activity, not just waiting for him to do all of the things necessarily. So to put it in human terms, to flourish, we need both exercise and rest, right? The human body needs both exercise and rest. Now, the two in practice look very, very different, One has your heart rate very low and your body probably still and fairly horizontal. Another one has your heart rate fluctuating and at peak and you are a frenzy of activity. In order to flourish, we need these two things held in tension, living alongside one another. And so for the Christian life, it's very, very, very much the same. He gives us rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and need rest, and I'll give it to you. Take my yoke upon you. I'll do some heavy lifting for you. But also, he calls his people up into activity and into a lifestyle mirrored after his, a lifestyle of self-giving. So today, here's what I want for you all of life. Here's what I I want as you're you're listening in, as you're wrestling. uh, I I, want to ask you, will you open your heart to the challenge and the call of Jesus Christ upon your life as a servant in particular? Will you open your heart to the call, to the challenge on Jesus that Jesus has upon your life? He wants to clarify, I believe, he wants to clarify his expectations for you. He wants to bring you into clarity this morning. He wants to challenge where you are right now. He wants to challenge you. Disclaimer, we're not going to get in his way and what he wants to do in you by making this all about like joining serve teams or joining some all of life based initiative. So you can let your guard down. That call is actually never going to come. Not at all this morning. I think that Jesus' aim for our life, uh, his ambition for your life is actually much bigger than that. I'm convinced that he's not asking me personally for isolated moments of service, but rather he's given me a new identity altogether as a servant in his family. So last week, just by way of recap, we talked about the fatherhood of God. We talked about how God has invited us into his family. He's made us his family. And so Christians are children with God as our father. We have been made the family of God by God himself. We are not orphans struggling to survive or to earn an identity. That's not our, the picture of who we are in Christ any longer. The father has gifted us an enduring identity, and the enduring identity that he's gifted us is one of child. So for, the, for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus, for you to preach to yourself, rehearse for yourself, I am a daughter of 
the most high God is the truest thing that you could possibly preach to yourself about yourself. That reality is yours, gifted to you by the Father. For men, for you to say, I am a son of the most high God, that is the truest thing that you could possibly rehearse and preach to yourself. He's gifted us this enduring identity. We are children. And so last week, the way that I concluded was uh, hand, in, in a handful of one another's, a handful of ways that the Father is calling us to live together, to be devoted to one another, to not judge one another, to accept one another, to be willing to instruct one another, to care for one another, to serve one another. All of this was modeled after how the Father has already come to us and given himself to us. So in in human terms, or to use a human illustration, a foundational element of a functional, healthy family. Now I'm saying functional, healthy family. We can all think of exceptions to that. But But a functional, healthy family has as a foundational element this posture of service to one another, and it's motivated by mutual love or reciprocal love. So I'm thinking of this, and some of you may not find yourself in this place, but I'm thinking of a husband and a wife. Think of a husband and a wife who love one another and who are giving themselves to one another in service. They're serving, they're sacrificing, they're giving, they're devoted to one another. In the early stages of romance, none of this is very difficult, right? And like the pitter-patter stages, like none of it is very difficult. But as we live together over time with one another, we become more and more aware as individuals of the sin of the other person, and the other person becomes aware of our sin. And if we're honest with one another and, and honest before God, we start to become more aware of our own sin. And when we give to one another, even through those seasons, and when we work out our arguments and our conflicts, and when we find ourselves reconciling, when I recognize that my spouse, and when she recognizes that I am giving myself to her for her good, devoted to her, it's life-giving. It's incredibly life-giving. It's so life-giving, in fact, that sometimes a baby comes along, right? Like, we love to uh, to, to have romance with one another. And as a child comes into the world, when you think about like a parent or parents, and you think about a newborn, freshly born child, is that love mutual? Do they give love to one another in a mutual way? Is it reciprocal? I'll ask it like that. Is the love between a newborn and parent reciprocal love? It's almost entirely one-way love. The child has needs, and the parent gives. The child cries, and the parent moves in in service. The need is rarely convenient either, right? It comes in the middle of the night. It comes in the middle of a drive. It comes in the middle of the thing you're trying to do, but there is interruption. And so what do you do as a functional, healthy parent? You get up and in love, you serve the other. But over time, through your parental influence, this child will begin to reciprocate, will begin to respond to your parental love through this self-giving of their own. And so if they're in the words stage, they'll start to say, I love you, or they'll say your 
name with a smile on their face or they'll wrap you up in a hug or they'll give you acts of service. Like they'll come to you with their, you know, like a little crayon or something like that wrapped up in their blankie and they'll, and they'll give it to you as a gift. It's a show of their service. It's a show of their love. And as siblings are added to the family, they continue to serve and give. Older siblings begin not to j- just to give love to mom and dad, but also to give their love to younger siblings and siblings to them and siblings to the parents. And so what happens in, a, in an ideal picture is that the family is bound together in love and service is present there among them. And just to be frank, there is a ton of mess and there is a ton of dysfunction and a ton of inconvenience in every single family. But in the functional God-honoring family, a commitment to one another's good endures and it's regularly seen. And so what this means is that your presence and act of self-giving, it's good news to the people around you. And the people around you, their act of self-giving is good news. It comes as good news to you. It feels good to you when family, when family members come your way and serve. And it feels good to serve and also to be served. Jesus said what? It is more of a blessing to give than it is to receive, and we find that to be true in our acts of self-giving many times. It's not without its problems, though, at times either. So the Father's will is that we would be adopted into his family. That's his will. He comes for us. He wants us. He's planned this out. He's named you. He's called you. He celebrates, and he wants you in his family. And in order to accomplish it, though, he's, he has given his son. He sent his son to live among us who came of his own will also. And Jesus came to live among us to fulfill the law perfectly and to open up a quote out of Hebrews, this new and living way into family through his life, his death, his resurrection from the dead. And so the gospel changes and continues to change everything for us. You've heard much of this before, but this is truth being proclaimed. Jesus gave up his life, and he sacrificed it through death. What this means for us is that he has served us as far as a human being could possibly go. He has gone all the way, nothing, absolutely nothing withheld for you. And so we respond as his people with this sense of praise be to God in our hearts and on our lips. And through his intense passion, we've got more identity coming our way than just family. We're not just adopted into the family, but we're also being conformed into Christ's likeness, which means that he's making us day by day, click by click, more and more and more like him as we live with him. So we're servants in his family. And so we are. We're servants in the family of God. He has named us. He has given us this identity, not only family, yes, family, but also servants in the family of God. And that is my point for this morning. There's one point. Christians are servants in the family of God. So here's where we're going to read Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 31. So turn there, if you would, in your Bibles, on your apps, however you, however you get there. I'm going to give you a bit of running commentary uh, as we go here. 
Verse 31, um, he's teaching these disciples. They're, they're feeling pretty unsure about his call on their life. He says, if you go up into verse 29, Truly I say to you, there's nobody who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who won't receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. You're also gonna, it's also going to come with suffering, though, with persecutions. But in the age to come, it'll come as eternal life. The many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So he's essentially saying, like, those aiming at first place will take up last place. Those pulling up the rear are going to inherit the front. Then in verse 32 through 34, Jesus is speaking for the very... Th- For the third time now, he's foreshadowing and foretelling how he is going to suffer at the hands of not only the Jews, but also the Romans. And so these disciples, they left where they were at that time, and they were on the road, and they had a destination. They were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking up in front of them, ahead of them. And these disciples, they were amazed at this teaching. But look here, and those who were followed were also afraid. So they're a mix of They're confounded by him. They are amazed by his teaching, and they're also fearful because they're starting to weigh the cost of following him. And so taking the 12 to himself again, Jesus began to tell them what was going to happen to them, to him rather, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is the seat of power in Israel, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes those who have the power in Israel, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are those who are not Jews, specifically the Romans. And the Romans will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus is predicting his ultimate service for the third time here. The weight of it is settling on these disciples, causing them fear and amazement. And Mark has placed this here intentionally. He's setting us up for verses 35 through 45. And James and John, verse 35, these, remember, James and John, if you, if you recall how Jesus called his first disciples, they were among the very first whom he called. And if you remember the story, they got out of their father Zebedee's boat, like right then and there, left the family business in order to follow Jesus. It was a radical picture of devotion to this rabbi's call to follow him. And so James and John, these sons of Zebedee, they came up to Jesus and they said to him, teacher, So this is a title of respect and authority here. They're likely buttering him up in some way. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You can like see them even like kind of just moving their hands together like this. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He said to him, grant to us one to sit at your right and one to sit at your left. In your glory, Jesus responds here, you don't know what you're asking. We know what we need. Give us whatever we ask of you. What is it you want? Think about the space that he's creating for them right here too. He's giving them this kind hearing, but he's also setting them up, and he's outplaying their hand a bit right here. He's always gunning for the heart. He's always aiming at our root beliefs and motivations. 
And through his simple question and his willingness to just close his own mouth and let them speak, they'll expose their true desires and their wants. C.S. Lewis said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And that's what these disciples are at in this moment. They want seats of power and influence right next to him in glory. You don't know what you're asking for. Yeah, we do, Jesus. We know what we're asking for. We know better than you, teacher. Do you see the irony in that statement? If he is the teacher and they know better than they're wise in their own eyes. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. These disciples are wise in their own eyes. They're guided by self-interest. These disciples, they want glory from the king more than they want the king's glory. They want glory from him more than they want his glory. Us too. We're not different. These disciples in the story are real men. Um, John wrote one of the Gospels that we have, John's Gospel, and then he wrote three letters to the church toward the end of your New Testament, and he also wrote the book of Revelation, which tells the story of Jesus and his glory and his power at the close of the age. James would end up giving his life for the sake of the gospel. You can read that in Acts chapter 12. He was likely the second martyr the church had, the second person in the church who lost his life for the sake of the gospel. Herod um, took his life as the, right in the moment that the Gentiles are kind of being wrapped up and into, grafted into the family of God for the very first time. The, these disciples, they're real men. They're real women. The two disciples, James and John here, real men, their requests also bear application for us. We want pleasure, we want glory from God, and we want benefit from him at little cost to ourselves. We want it at little or no cost. We desire the culture and the ethic of God's kingdom. We desire the, the, the spoils of the kingdom, the way of life of the kingdom. You can see this in the world too, but often rejecting the very king who brings those things. And so the world wants justice, and the world wants mercy, and the world wants generosity, but they don't want these things. They don't want the one from whom these things originate from. We and the world, we want easy money, health, easy learning, easy affluence, easy relationships. And, and when they come at a, at a cost to us, we are, we're really tempted to bail on obedience and on submission to Jesus. We're, we're, we're tempted to live according to our own standard. And so when it looks for us like somebody might get there first, we'll cut them off. Or when somebody cuts in front of us, we became uh, or become indignant will scowl and will stare at the people cutting in line in front of us. A simple line, just the line you've been waiting for, for something for a little while. You've been waiting in line, somebody cuts in front, and we get a little bit testy with people like this. Verse 39, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able, we're able. Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, it's not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. For these disciples, the cup here 
<clears throat> it represents something that is, that, that is different than what Jesus has in mind. The cup that they're thinking of here is the cup of celebration as they fight alongside Jesus and liberate Israel. But for Jesus, the cup signifies that he will endure the Father's wrath in order to bring people into the family of God. As they're thinking of baptism here, it equals the renewal of Israel shall finally be washed clean of Rome, stand on her own in glory again. But for Jesus, baptism equals his service. His whole life, his death, his resurrection, it's in service of his allegiance to the will of his Father. And so whatever the Father willed, Jesus willed. He and the Father, he would say, are one. I and the Father are one. And so Jesus promised James and John that they would experience his baptism and his cup. And they would. James would be martyred and John would suffer incredible, incredibly for the sake of the gospel. Notice in verse 40, Jesus says here too, sitting at my right or my left, it's not mine to grant. So for these disciples, a seat at the right or the left, it, it represents a place of prominence, a place of power, a place of dominion. But Jesus, in his way of life, in his teaching, he considers himself a servant. And his whole life is about doing his Father's will. Therefore, for him, the seat of honor, it's not his to dispense. It's his for his father, or it's for his father rather to dispense of. And so if in Jesus' kingdom, if you're not willing to live happily under authority, you don't get a seat of authority. That's how Jesus' economy works. If you are unwilling to submit yourself under authority, there is no authority for you to exercise. And if you do get the seat of authority, it's because the Father has granted it to you. Look at Jesus' own example, the example of Jesus in his life. This is the Apostle Paul writing in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to pick up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and read through verse 11. And what Paul is doing here is he's encouraging and exhorting the church to have a, a, a one mind among themselves, to be unified in their mindset. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is Christ Jesus' mind for his people. And here it is. Here's his mindset. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus didn't count equality with the Father a thing to be grasped. But Jesus rather emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of humanity. And being found in human form, Jesus would humble himself all the way by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a humiliating, shameful, painful death on a cross. Therefore, as a result of Jesus' humbling and his submission to the Father, his work in fulfilling the law for the Father, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on Jesus the name that is, a, is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His is the name even in 2020 that is more famous than every other name in history. Who else uses a God's name or a supposed God's name as a cuss word? Literally, his first name and his title, Jesus Christ, as a cuss word. 
It's on the lips of all kinds of people, not just those who profess his name in faith or, 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 or propose that they follow him in faith. So Jesus, uh, what Paul is showing us in Philippians 2 is that Jesus came to give his life away, which is how he became the way, which is why he is the way. He came to give his life away, which is how he has become the way. He's perfectly fulfilled the law of the Father. He's lived in our place. He is our way. And so those who find themselves embedded in Jesus' new community, in the family of God, we find ourselves challenged to reconcile with one another, to work it out with one another, to live in harmony with one another, even when our views totally digress from one another. Because... Our king and his decrees are at the center of our life together. So we look to him for direction. Many opposed Jesus throughout his life, throughout his ministry, and therefore continued to live in conflict with him, with God, and conflict with the way of his kingdom as well. Verse 41, uh, these disciples, there's 10 other uh, disciples here living with Jesus. Two of them have kind of squeaked in, edged in here, asked for the positions of authority and dominion, influence and power. One at his right, one at his left here. But look at verse 41. And when the 10 heard about this, they became something. They began to be indignant at James and John. To be indignant. So indignation, it's anger. And it's annoyance provoked by what is perceived as unfair treatment. It's anger and annoyance at what is perceived by you or I to be unfair treatment. Why were these ten? In, in, um, why, why were they indignant at James and John? Because James and John cut in line in front of them, cut in front, were looking and seeking for something from themselves that would necessarily have an effect on the other ten by squeezing them out to the margins. They cut in line. How about you? You get all riled up when people cut in front of you in line? I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, I-90, is there's like a bunch of traffic outside of Coeur d'Alene on I-90 eastbound, right? And the lane goes down to one lane on the right-hand side, and so you start to see these signs, left lane ends, right? And so like a good person, good rule follower, you get over into the right-hand lane, but for some reason that left-hand lane doesn't close down quite as soon as you thought it would, and so you're in bumper-to-bumper traffic that's like slowing a bit. Meanwhile, woo, woo. You know, cars and semis and other vehicles are coming down your side in the left-hand lane. What do you do with that? How do you feel about that? Do you do what I do with that and get all, like, riled up at yourself? If you wait in line long enough, I don't care who you are, you are going to be miffed at people who start cutting in line in front of you, yeah? Am I the only one? Glad. Why is this? Why do we get miffed? Why do we get miffed at people who cut in line in front of us? It's because we live on a merit system. We live our lives based on a merit system. A merit system is based on fairness. It's based on what is fair. But the kingdom of God, it lives by a whole different standard altogether. Altogether, The kingdom of God, um, the, the way of God, the system that God's economy works on is radical in the eyes of humanity. The kingdom of God runs on grace, unmerited favor, generosity, 
people humbling themselves into the place of service, becoming a slave or a servant of all. Grace goes way further than fairness goes. Grace is a pebble in the shoe to those who are all about fairness. It just is agitating. The two systems, God's kingdom and the world system of fairness, the merit system of religion, uh, it's, the, it's incompatible. It's absolutely incompatible. Fairness is based on merit, which means you get what you deserve, you get what you've earned, but grace is based on generosity, which means you get what Jesus has earned for you. You get the benefit of what another has given to you. You have not earned it, otherwise it would be a merit system. The grace of God isn't just based on grace alone either, but it has mercy as a foundation, which means that we are spared from what we do deserve. We're spared from what we actually deserve, which is to be cut off from God, lost in our sin, dead in our trespass. That's what we deserve. And yet grace comes along and then gives us an abundance on top of that that takes our words away. The way of the kingdom of God is better than the way of the world. But at its root, self-interest, which these disciples are displaying, it's about self-exaltation. We want what we believe we deserve because our glory and our contentment and our well-being and our satisfaction and our happiness is what many of us most want. Now, I love America. I said this in the first gathering. I'm really frustrated with her politics and with her division right now. I find myself really frustrated, but I love the United States of America. And Americans need to know this and hear this. We live with a fiercely entitled mindset. We are known the world over as an entitled people. Driving is not your right. It's a privilege. Clean water in your faucet is not your right. It's your privilege. It's my privilege. Even fair wages are not our rights. They're our privileges. They are privileges. Should we fight for them? Should we leverage for these things? Absolutely. But we should check our entitlement at the door or at least be willing to assess just how entitled we have become. We need to know the way of culture. We need to know the way of the world. Non-Jewish leaders, these Gentiles, Jesus would say, would lord their authority over those in their care and vicinity. They would push other people down in order to keep their comforts, keep their positions, keep their entitlements. And so they would pursue self-interest at the expense of those under them. But Jesus Christ redefines greatness. He redefines what it means to be great. And he rebukes these disciples here. He says in verse 43, it shall not be so among you. This way of life of pushing other people down in order to get what you want should not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And then he takes it even further here. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. And then he shows how he is the perfect picture of what it means to be a servant and a slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, to pour it all out, every last bit, as a ransom for many. As much as we need to know the way of the world, 
we're called to embrace and to practice the way of Jesus. And so his posture of service, radical, giving it all out service, redefines the way for us. In verses 33 and, or 40, 43 and 44, uh, he's speaking to these apostles. These apostles would be the leaders of his people. They would be the leaders of his church. The church would be built upon their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the church would be built and would go forward on the basis of their teaching, the foundation of their teaching. And so he's speaking a bit to leaders within the Christian church. Leadership of God's people is characterized by humble service and acting in the best interests of those who you are responsible for. And so leaders in the church exist to serve the people of God at every stage. At every stage, leaders in the church do not exist to serve themselves. They exist to serve the people of God. I've heard from many of you lately, as you're leading yourselves, as you're leading your families, as you're leading um, the communities of people that you find yourself embedded with, um, I've, I've heard and felt this, like, this beautiful posture of service from you. Uh, some of it, I, re I regret that we kind of live where we live. Uh, this, I don't know how to exactly say this. We live in a place of affluence. Northern Idaho right now is very affluent. It's hard to see people in need. It's hard to, like you actually have to go looking for people who will accept your resources, who you can serve with your time and your talents and your, and your skill. It can be difficult to flesh that out. But I've heard from so many of you lately if anyone needs anything, let us know. We want to give of our resources. We want to leverage our resources. We want to give of our time. We want to give of our talents. I love what Jesus is doing among us as a church family, and I celebrate it. I don't have any correction for that whatsoever. It's not coming. Like, I just think that the smile of God is wholly upon you in that posture of servant. So I just want to say thank you. I am receiving and I am blessed by you. This word that Jesus uses here for servant is, this, is the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon from. Deacon is a role within the church. There are elders and deacons. Those are like the two uh, offices that are most explicit in the New Testament, elder and deacon. So if you're looking for greatness in the kingdom, which is according to Jesus an honorable pursuit, if you are looking for greatness in his kingdom, he affirms that that is an honorable pursuit and that we should go after it. The way up for you and I is down. The way up in the kingdom is down. It's through the means of service. Jesus is so masterful in his teaching at getting to the issues of our hearts. If you want greatness, then you're going to serve. If you want firstness in line, then you are going to make yourself a slave of everyone, regardless of their look, their title, their position, their way. You are just going to humble yourself to serve them and bring to them whatever they might need. And your willingness and my willingness to do so will reveal the posture of our heart and will reveal, will reveal for us what we're truly after. So are we after a life of abiding in Christ or are we after a life of pursuing our own interests? Our willingness to make ourselves servants and slaves reveals this hands down. There's no question about it. The two rarely live in the same house. So self-interests and self-giving. 
Now, I'm going to read as we conclude with a, a pretty lengthy quote. It'll be up on the screen from Donald Whitney, and then we'll uh, conclude here. But I just want you to kind of settle yourself in and to try to follow along here. I think he makes this really, really clear, and I think this will just kind of tie some things together for us. This is what Don Whitney says. Much of the Christian life sounds more exciting than serving others. Meditation on Scripture, it appeals to our desire for spiritual depth. Fasting, it can strike us as a challenge to a rugged, self-denying discipleship. But serving, it sounds mundane, even demeaning. Enter Jesus in the gospel. Jesus declared, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God works through the gospel of Jesus in part to make people like Jesus. As Jesus came not to be served, but instead had the heart of a servant, so those who believe the gospel of Jesus are given Christ-like, heart, are given Christ-like hearts of servants. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms enemies of God into servants of God. The Holy Spirit still works through this gospel to turn those who serve their idols. And he'll give a couple of examples in, in my text here, such as wealth, career, sports, sex, house, land, so on. The, gospel, he, the Holy Spirit works through the gospel to turn those who serve their idols into servants of God, just as he did in the Apostle Paul's day when the missionary wrote to some relatively new Christians, you turned from God to idols to serve the living and true God. One way the gospel turns sinners into servants is by humbling their pride. Consider this for yourself. One way the gospel turns sinners into servants is by humbling their pride. Through the gospel, people see that God is holy and that each of us deserve his wrath for breaking his law an infinite number of times. The gospel, it shows us what Christ did for sinners and how blessed we are to be received into his kingdom and into his family. As a result of understanding this incomparable message and experiencing God through this message, people willingly serve him and serve his gospel. So, there's implication here. One of the clearest indications that a person has believed the gospel of Jesus is that his selfish desire to be served begins, notice there's, 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 progress here. It begins to be overcome by a Christ-like desire to serve. He or she starts looking for ways to do something for Christ's church, especially in ways that will serve the gospel. The transformation in a person's nature that God affects through the gospel, it also does something. It turns selfish people interested only in serving themselves and being served by others into people who, in the words of the apostle Peter, want to serve one another. And so the gospel opens believers' eyes to see needs that they never saw before and changes their hearts to have new compassion and willingness to meet those needs. Here's the last paragraph. As the Holy Spirit permeates people's character with the effects of the gospel, they increasingly develop a mindset of serving in every part of life. They begin to consider their daily occupation their job, their vocation, in terms of how useful it should be in the service of others instead of simply how it enlarges their wealth or reputation. They give more thought to serving the members of their own families. They want to know that their churches are stronger because of their service. So here's a question for us and for you this morning. Is the Holy Spirit permeating this language of saturation, is he getting into the nooks and crannies? Is he permeating your character with the effects of the gospel? 
Do you recognize that you have a, a new identity to live into and it's servant of your king who has served you? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life of humility and service to the person in your seat, to you, the person with your DNA. And so I want to ask this question. Who has needs around you? Have you gotten lazy and looking? Perhaps you have. I certainly have. Will you serve them? Maybe it'll create discomfort, awkward conversations. I don't know what it looks like in serving the people around you. But maybe by his goodness and grace and just generosity in this moment, it'll begin to just download people's stories into your mind. And if not in the moment right now, you begin to see it and look with new eyes and open eyes in the coming week. Here's where I'll conclude. The Apostle John is, he's known as, he's known as the Apostle of Love. The Apostle John is the guy in this story, trying to edge out the other apostles here. In this account, he's this immature brute who's jockeying for position for his own personal power and his own prominence. But as proof of how the gospel changes people, Notice who John became. He became known as the apostle of love. And so as he would write letters to the churches, he would constantly and consistently call them to love and to serve one another as Christ had served them. He writes to these churches, teaching them to love one another and to keep themselves from idols. So you've been given a new identity. The father has called you into his family and the son has called you servants but he hasn't done so through an unwillingness to lower himself and to humble himself in your service. He's done so through a willingness to humble himself and to lower himself in order that you would be served and brought into the family and not just brought into the family, but be empowered in the family, being changed degree by degree into his likeness. We are servants in the family of God. Father, uh, help this to settle in in our minds and hearts uh, today. It, it, it can be, it can feel like a bit much. I thank you earlier in our, our first gathering, just in this time of prayer, I recognized uh, how you were um, applying this message directly to the circumstances of my life. I didn't see it prior. I saw it as I was praying. So I ask in the same way, Holy Spirit, that you'll just, you'll do that in the room and with those who are listening in. You'll settle into us this recognition of how you're calling us to serve, but that it will be motivated and empowered from constant look, looks back to Jesus and how he has served us. So may our service always be rooted and grounded in the work of Jesus on our behalf and then flow out of a place of gratitude. And when we can't get to that place of gratitude, when we feel the grumble in our heart, but we're in the midst of service, Holy Spirit, would you kindly and graciously correct us and draw us back to rehearsing the good news that we are beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God. Turn our hearts and change us from one, deg one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' name, amen.